So we're going to talk about protozoal diseases. Um, okay, so as a reminder, there are a whole lot more protozoa than the three that this lecture focuses on. Kindly, whoever assigned lectures only focused on those three. So a lot of these fall into, you know, our diarrhea lectures or malaria or other um, various lectures. The purple book by Spec, um, the comprehensive review to infectious diseases that I've told you guys about before has really helpful tables. Sort of if you find yourself just getting really confused by protozoa, they have tables like this that show that just sort of list them and the clinical syndrome just as a nice reminder. Um, and for the purposes of this talk, we're going to be focusing on entamoeba, leishmania, leishmania, trypanosoma um, species. And we often think of these as more tropical diseases, you know, travelers and people who live in other countries. But these news articles are all from the past six months, uh, just talking about how, you know, some of these diseases that we always think of as tropical diseases are really prevalent in the U.S. So these are just, you know, regular news media um, talking about a tropical disease carried by sand flies, and that's related to lush mania cases in um, like Texas. And then there's ones about Chagas disease. Um, in the top and then that bottom one about organ transplant patients can die when donors aren't screened for this parasitic disease that was a big topic earlier this year as sort of recommendations were evolving over whether or not all organ donors should be screened for chagas disease in the u.s um so i think it's interesting that there's developments in all these ones lately we'll get started with a question um jess you want to read sure 40-year-old man presented with a two-week history of pain on defecation and hematochesia, known to have HIV declined art in the past. A colonoscopy was performed. Uh, investigations, he had a CD4 count of 30. Colonoscopy showed ulcerated mucosa. Um, biopsies were taken. Ulcer histology showed amoebic trophozoites with a single nucleus and ingested red blood cells, no cysts. So the question's going to be, What's the cause of this? And before I give you the options, does anyone know what that histology makes you think of? And what about it, says Antamoeba to you? Yeah. Okay. So, Rune already answered this for us, Antamoeba histolytica. And it's really that histology that gives you the history. And we'll come back to this when we talk about who's at risk, but the um, men who have sex with men, and especially if you're immunocompromised, are risk factors for um, entamoeba histolytica infection. Um, and again, another table from that purple book, but I think it's helpful because there's a lot of entamoeba species, but they're not all pathogenic. And so this one just gives you a plus minus whether or not it's pathogenic. So histolytica is the one that's clearly pathogenic. Morphologically, it's basically the same as Entamoeba dispar, which is non-pathogenic. So that can make microscopy, stool microscopy, difficult to interpret because you can't necessarily tell those two apart. Um, there's two others, Moshkovsky and Bangladeshi, presumably from named based on where they were found or identified. Um, and those that sort of like they were thought to be non-pathogenic, then maybe there's some cases, but um, that's a little more up in the air. So for the purposes of this talk, we're talking about Entamoeba histolytica. Um, since that's the clearly pathogenic organism. Um, so life cycles. So when you're talking about protozoa, they all have life cycles. I gotta say I was never a fan of learning life cycles. I found them annoying. So the main 
points we're going to highlight here is how the life cycles help you understand what um, how diagnosis is made and what you would see on diagnostic tests or histology um, that would come up in board's questions or in you know real life if you had a case of this. Um, so starting with sort of the transmission of entamoeba histolytica, it's fecal oral transmission. Both cysts and trophozoites are passed in feces of someone who's infected. And then someone else takes in a mature cyst. Um, you don't need a lot, just a single cyst can be infectious. Um, but the cyst is the infectious stage. And then the cysts get into the gut. And in the bottom corner where it shows you, it shows you how excystation occurs, creating trophozoites, which multiply and create both trophozoites and more cysts. Um, and both of those, again, are passed in the stool. Um, trophozoites are the actual tissue destructive phase. Um, so they're the ones that you see typically in the histology. Um, and we sort of think of entamoeba infections. There's three broad categories, and we'll talk about these more on another slide, but it can get into the gut and cause non-invasive colonization, which is generally asymptomatic. It can cause intestinal disease. This is what we often think of amoebic colitis with dysentery and then extra intestinal disease. Um, so some of this sort of now based on the life cycle setting the stage, we know that e-histolytica is fecal oral transmission and that cysts are the infective stage. Um, in case you wonder why they can be passed, they are resistant to chlorine at levels used in water supply. Um, and then the trophozoites are the tissue destructive. Uh, it's present worldwide, but most prevalent in tropics, resource limited countries, places where um, hygiene is not as great. Um, risk factors, so we usually think of those bottom few like travelers, recent immigrants, immunocompromised hosts, institutionalized populations, and men who have sex with men. There were some interesting reports of a dramatic rise in entamoeba infections in men in like 1978 to 86 in San Francisco, sort of at that time of the early AIDS epidemic. Um, and transmission, fecal oral, but there is a role that asymptomatic carriers play um, working as food handlers. And, you know, the majority of cases are not symptomatic, not invasive. So there's a whole lot more asymptomatic cyst excretors than there are people with invasive disease. And so we'll go into more into those three categories of clinical presentation. So we talked about asymptomatic infection, 90% of people. Um, and the groups that tend to be more likely to develop one of the symptomatic infections are what we talked about, immunocompromised, people getting steroids, people who are young, pregnancy, and alcohol seems to be a big risk factor. Um, amoebic colitis uh, is more of a subacute onset of diarrhea, but it can progress to severe dysentery. And you can see the percent of people who have this who have each of the following symptoms. So abdominal pain, bloody diarrhea are common. Um, fever in half of people and weight loss in a good chunk. In a small proportion, this can develop complications like fulminant colitis, bowel necrosis, peritonitis, like if you get a perforation. And then really uncommonly, you can develop an amoeboma. I, think that, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but uh, basically an amoebic mass in the cecum or colon that can look like cancer until you biopsy it. Extra intestinal infections tend to occur a bit later. The Colitis occurs quickly after infection, the extra intestinal infection a couple months later. It's 10 times more common in men for reasons that aren't clearly identified, even though the rate of colitis is the same in men and women. Um, and it can go a lot of different places. Liver abscess is most common. 
It can also go into the pleural pulmonary space, especially if it starts as a liver abscess, it can then rupture and spread into that space. Same with cardiac infection, it can rupture and spread into the pericardial space. Um, you can get brain abscesses and then cutaneous infection. And cutaneous infections tend to be in the genital region, sort of like infants in diapers who have this, sort of that direct contact of the amoeba with the skin. Um, again, those other complications are less common other than liver abscesses. Um, and because liver abscess is such a common complication, as far as complications go. Um, just wanted to highlight some of the basic, you know, clinical presentation and findings. So we said it's more common in men. Usually have a couple weeks of right upper quadrant pain and fever, and you may or may not have diarrhea at the same time. Only a minority of people will have diarrhea at the same time. Again, often these are separated in time and space. Um, a lot of people will recall an episode of bloody diarrhea in the past few months, but um, not having diarrhea doesn't rule this out by any means. On exam, you'll see point tenderness over the liver and hepatosplenomegaly. And then diagnosis, often these patients would get imaging, and then you get the imaging is suggestive of this. Um, serology, we'll talk about more of the diagnostic tests, but serology is very helpful in extraintestinal infection, like a liver abscess. And stool studies are often not helpful, especially if they aren't having diarrhea. It's not, not reliably going to find those cysts and trophozoids there. Um, and we know that often this is part of a, you know, there may be a differential based on the imaging. It may not be a slam dunk, um, depending on their epi risk factors and how, how concerned you are and how long it takes for serology to come back. Um, so as far as diagnosis goes, there's a different groups of diagnostic tests. So microscopy, we often think about, and we get this on board exams, you know, they show us a picture and say, what is it? Um, and in the stool, like we talked about, both trophozoids and cysts are excreted. You may have to get multiple stool samples. Um, in the tissue, if you're getting histology, um, you usually see trophozoites. And the flask-shaped ulcers is the sort of um, buzzword for what you see in the colitis. And microscopy cannot distinguish E. histolytica from the other entamoeba. Um, stool antigen testing can be really helpful for intestinal disease. It's very sensitive. Uh, and it can distinguish Entamoeba histolytica from the other species. Dual PCR, this is part of our, like the GI panel, you know, multiplex PCRs. It has very good sensitivity and specificity and separates out the pathogenic species from the others. Um, and then serology. So serology, as we mentioned, is really good for liver abscess. It's okay for intestinal disease. Um, I think this number might be even be a little high. Um, it does take time, like with all serologies, it takes time for when the infection starts to when you test positive. Um, and so if you're testing someone at the onset of disease with their serology, their serology may be negative because they haven't had a chance to form a response. And the other challenge with serology is that if you're in an endemic region, you know, if someone's been exposed in the past and had an infection that's cleared, their serology can stay positive for years. Um, so less helpful there, but often in our clinical setting here in the U.S., the serology is helpful. Um, and so these are some of the, you know, images you may see. The first group of three over there are the cysts of Entamoeba histolytica. And you'll notice that they say they can't distinguish between histolytica and dyspar. Um, and there's usually up to four nuclei that you won't see them all. And then that chromatoid body in the center. Um, so that's what the cyst typically looks like. 
And then these are the trophozoites with ingested red blood cells. As Arun told us, that's a pretty key finding for entamoeba um, and important to recognize. And then treatment. So treatment for entamoeba, if you find someone has asymptomatic just colonization, you treat them with the luminal agent, peromomycin. If they have symptomatic intestinal disease, then it's sort of two-stage. You have to first treat with a tissue agent, like flagell, um, and then you treat with the luminal agent. Uh, they do include in some of these, like if someone actually has severe disease, if you're worried about invasive colitis, perforations, or those complications, you'd probably obviously get broader coverage if you think now there's a chance that gut bacteria has caused infection as well. Um, if you were to have, you know, toxic megacolon, then there are situations where surgical management would be involved. That's not common. And then for a liver abscess, you usually treat with medical therapy um, is usually enough. But if it's really large, if there's no response, if the diagnosis is unclear, which it can be, especially in these non-endemic regions, um, then you may drain it and sample it. For the asymptomatic treatment, it's all patient populations. It's not like specific to immunocompromised or the need to treat. Yeah, for the yeah for asymptomatic. Yeah. 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 yeah if you find it, I mean, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. there's probably some reason why you're, you're the why you're testing them, yeah. or are they a contact? I don't know. You know. Because I was wondering that as I was doing this, I was like, how often do you find an asymptomatic? Yeah. If you're looking for something else and stumble on yes. this. Transmissibility to the public is what you're trying to prevent. Right. I would think that for household contacts and, you know. Um, so that's sort of the entamoeba overview. At the end of the talk, after we cover each of these different protozoa, I have a few more review questions, but wanted to make sure we had time. Um, okay, so now we're going to switch topics. Will, sure. A 42-year-old man from Bolivia presented with nasal stuffiness and is found to have nasal cephaloformation, perforation. Biopsy demonstrates intracellular amastigotes, which mania, which is the most likely species. Let's see. Uh, Olivia is pretty close to Peru. <laughs> 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 it's actually between Brazil and Peru, so if that's what you're going off of. <laughs> Will, Will is always good about his geography. <laughs> I almost put up a picture of a map of Bolivia, but I was like, no, I don't want to. Oh. But aren't these questions frustrating? This question came straight from ID Border Review. It's one of like the, the daily preview questions. Um, and like you read the first sentence, you're like, I know what this is. And then they tell you and you're like, that's not the question. So does anyone have a guess? Major from like the old world. Major, and then I want to say in Fonten is the other like mucocutaneous. <laughs> I could be mistaken. I don't remember the individual species that yeah. well. Yeah, so I think you guys are getting at two important things. One is the geography, which species are found where, and then one is what diseases they cause because they don't all cause all the clinical presentations. Right, that is Bolivia's new world. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, what did you say? Oh, oh, sorry. Mexicana. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, great. So 
we're going to review this and everyone can use the review, it sounds like. So Brazilians, Brazil is also next to Bolivia. Um, and we'll look at maps, but Brazilians is also can cause the mucosal disease. Um, Peruviana does not, fun fact, um, but also is in the same general region. So uh, we'll go over lots of maps and stuff here. Um, so it's an intracellular protozoa. You guys know that the epi is that sand flies transmit it. Am animal to human transmission, human to human. It's a noiseless bug. It's active in evenings. Um, and as we mentioned, the geographical division is big. There's new world and there's old world. Um, and there's three clinical syndromes, the visceral leishmaniasis, kala azar, which I think is darkened skin. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. There's the mucocutaneous leishmaniasis and then cutaneous. Uh, the visceral. The visceral. Yeah, visceral is kala azar, yeah. Um, and so this is the life cycle. You guys know how much I love life cycles, but so here we start. You start with how someone gets infected is that step one is that the sandfly takes a blood meal from a person and injects the pro-mastigote stage into the skin. That's the infective stage. And then those are phagocytized by macrophages. They transform into the amastigotes and then the amastigotes are often what you see on histology and they're they multiply in cells of tissues and infect other cells and then a sandfly comes takes a bite of that infected person and then it continues on um, there's a cycle outside of humans as well uh, where the amastigotes transform into promastigotes and divide and then you know the cycle starts again um, but i think looking here just looking at what forms you're going to see in tissue is helpful to think about um, and so we mentioned the three different clinical presentations and that it really depends on the species. So this is a figure I pulled from ID board review and you can find figures of various detail. There are more species than this. You can get into more detail, but I thought this was maybe actually partially like ingestible, um, not too overwhelming. So in the new world, the big ones causing disease are L. mexicana causing cutaneous disease. Brasiliensis causes cutaneous and mucosal, as in our case. And then Infantum chagasi, which is in both New World and Old World, tends to cause visceral disease. One of them is visceral, one is cutaneous. I Very high yield. Yeah. And again, I stole this from board review, so I didn't create this on my own. But um, in the Old World, Tropica and Major are the cutaneous ones, and then Donovani and Infantum chagasi are the visceral ones. But is New World and Old World like just geographical? Geographical. Yeah. It's basically the Americas versus like like Middle East Eastern Europe versus the Americas. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. New World. Old World. When they first came. Yes, Columbus and his friends. Yes. Okay. Columbus and his friends. So. And you can find maps that sort of combine the last one chart with all the species on this, but I thought that was a little much. So this one shows you, we'll start with New World where we are. Um, and you could map this up with the species we saw in the last one where, you know, like Mexicana tends to be cutaneous and the area around Mexico is more, you know, those red color, which is cutaneous. And then Brasiliensis can cause more of the mucocutaneous and then Phantom Chagasi. So, 
sort of gives you an idea of what parts of the world you're looking at. And then as you go to Old World, um, you guys can see the Middle East, parts of Africa, though not all of Africa. Um, and then also the Mediterranean region, which I think is an interesting one that I think we sometimes forget um, that parts of Europe are endemic for leishmaniasis as well. As well as parts of the Middle East, um, there's a lot of veterans that came back from Iraq, from OIF, OEF with um, leishmaniasis. Yeah. Good point. And then, um, there are IDSA treatment guidelines from 2016 on Lishmania, and they had this figure comes from there of cutaneous presentations. You can see sort of the different ways these lesions can look, um, and that they can be more or less subtle depending on how long they've gone on, how long they've had time to progress. They can have some scaling, a raised border. Um, I think Is this these where you actually like get bitten, or can this happen? The cutaneous part, yeah. Yeah, that unfortunate guy just got it in the eye. <laughs> I think I remember us uh, being told that in the early days of the Iraqi conflict about 20 years ago, uh, you know, the U.S. service personnel would kind of sleep inside of donkeys, and they would be more exposed. But as the conflict went on, they they had indoor housing, and so the cases dropped. Just because some of these yeah. are, are obviously in U.S. service personnel, so. Maybe these like sandflies can only fly like six feet above the ground. So like most of the cases they have to be below that. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, the vector, like the vectors capabilities are very interesting in terms of these diseases and where we see them and who gets them. Um, and as we mentioned, it develops over weeks to months. It's a slowly progressive. These are generally painless. Sometimes they can get super infected and then they can be painful. Um, so you wouldn't rule that out completely. Usually starts as a papule, develops into a nodule, then it starts to ulcerate and can scar. Um, and we sort of talked about some of those characteristics of the ulcer and the pictures show it better than I could describe it. Um, I also thought the one on top of that tattoo was really interesting, just uh, <laughs> probably wouldn't be many of our first <laughs> For cutaneous leash, uh, mostly resolve spontaneously, especially those mentioned. Uh, so do they need treatment if they're... We'll get to the treatment one, yeah. Um, and then mucosal is our second category. So these mm -hmm. show more of that nasal mucosal area, the lips, the palate. It can involve different parts. Um, and these are slow, progressive, destructive, and people often start with like nasal congestion and epistaxis, like you would never, your first thought here in the US would never be leishmaniasis, but over time it will progress. Um, and this happens months to years after a cutaneous ulcer, and these do not heal spontaneously. Um, so these do require treatment. And then visceral, there's less in terms of pictures to show you, but often the pictures you find are like a malnourished child who has a huge belly due to hepatosplenomegaly. And so these, the species are Donovani and then Infantum Chagasi, which is the one that's both old and new world. Um, Leishmaniasis spreads hematogenously to the lymph nodes, liver, spleen, bone marrow, um, and presents with weeks to months of symptoms, fevers, chills, fatigue, nonspecific symptoms. You have labs that show cytopenias, hypergammaglobulinemia, 
um, and this disease persists and it can also reactivate in people who are immunocompromised. So diagnosis are different methods. You can, so anytime you're sampling from like a cutaneous or mucosal lesion, you're always sampling the, which part? Yeah, the edge, the border of it is always where you're most likely to get yield. Um, you can culture it. it. If it grows, it'll take weeks. Um, when you look at it on the histopathology, often for the leading edge of the skin, you can detect parasites in many cases, though not all. You can also do aspirates of the bone marrow, lymph node, and spleen. Spleen would be your highest yield, but you're risking splenic rupture. So in many cases, it'd start elsewhere. Um, PCR testing can be done, but is not actually available globally in many of these endemic areas. Serology can be used in certain cases, usually through reference labs. Um, if for some reason your path is negative, but you're really concerned, that would be a pretty specialized use. So usually on you know, the boards, for example, it will probably be the histopath. Um, and this is what you see. This is a bone marrow aspirate. And you can see those amastigotes. That's the form that spreads in tissue. And then treatment. So to get to your question for cutaneous, you can observe if they're a normal host, only a couple lesions, they're small, they're not on areas that you're worried are gonna cause pretty destructive changes. And if they don't have any subcutaneous nodules, suggestive of spread. Um, you treat systemically if it's certain species. So especially the ones that can go on to cause mucosal disease. And there's lots of different treatment options. There's local treatment options for the cutaneous lesions and then systemic um, options as well. I did not go into all the details of treatment. Like I said, there are IDSA treatment guidelines. For mucosal leash for new world species, you do oral miltefacine. It isn't always very well tolerated. It has a lot of GI effects. You absolutely cannot give in pregnancy. And then amphotericin and antimony are, well, that one's not available, but those are other alternatives. And for visceral, it's really liposomal amphotericin, B or miltefacine. And those are the treatment guidelines. Okay, so that's the overview of Lesh. Um, Arun? About uh, 41-year-old woman presented to the local ED for fever times one day, associated with swelling and redness in her groin. She returned four days earlier from a safari in Tanzania. Peripheral blood smears obtained. It was most likely diagnosis. Anyone have an idea? I mean, it's not, it's not. I think it's the other ones don't really make yeah, much sense. Because Vivax isn't going to do it. Timeline for leptosphere is not very good. Okay. What do you usually think of trypanosoma brucei causing? That's cruzy. Sleeping sickness. But yeah, it's also a trypanosoma. Yeah, good test taking skills. The one prozo we have yet to cover is trypanosoma. So this is a lead into that section. Um, but yeah, we'll review. This is, you know, trypanosoma brucei. There's two parts we'll, or two species. We'll cover them. We usually think of it as sleeping sickness, but it does have this earlier phase of a possible chancre and lymphadenopathy and sort of uh, more acute symptoms are possible. And Safari in Tanzania even tells you which of the subspecies and they didn't even ask for that here. Um, 
So trypanosoma infections in the Americas, again, we're like doing this old world, new world thing, but in the Americas, it's T. cruzi causing Chagas disease. And then the Africa's it's sleeping sickness. And there's Gambiense in West Africa, and there should be a D in there, Rhodesiense in East Africa. I'm never sure how to pronounce it. So we're going to start with Chagas disease, trypanosoma cruzi. Um, so how it's spread, we mainly think of vector transmission, so the reduvid bug spreads it. Um, but there's also congenital transmission, and as we have better vector control in a lot of the endemic regions, a higher percent of the cases are occurring through congenital transmission where an infected mom passes it to baby. Um, and it occurs in up to 10% of infants born to infected mothers, and it can cause pretty severe disease. Um, there's also a lot of cases, blood transfusions in the past. Now the blood donor pool is screened and organ donation has been a big topic. Um, there, are, there are also rare cases of oral intake of food or drinks, especially like sugarcane drinks, things that are like mashed, and where there's a chance that those infected vectors could get in there. Um, and there, this is sort of like there are case reports you can find of like 100 people getting infected at once at a festival. Side, in the side, side. Uh, Yep, that's yeah. the other one. Yeah, but more like in the appropriate, like if you're in the Amazon jungle having this, not if you're buying it at your local. <laughs> so life cycle, if you start with number one at the top, so you guys may know this, but it's when a triadamine bug or a reduvid bug, they have lots of different names. There are many species that transmit T. cruzi. Um, they take a blood meal from a person and they, they, poop on that site and then the poop is what's actually infectious and gets into the um, bite wound or it gets in a mucosal membrane if you're bit by an eye or something and so it's not actually the bite that transmits it, it's the bite that opens up the space for the stool to get in and they pass the they don't mind. what the, yeah they're bugs um <laughs> and they're trypomastigotes and then they can penetrate into the wound. They transform into the amastigotes. So those ones are the ones that are multiplying in tissue. Those amastigotes are the ones you'll see on like cardiac biopsy. Um, and then those transform into the tripomastigotes, which get out into the bloodstream. And that's what you see in the bloodstream. So steps three and four are what you often may get a picture of on the boards or in pathology. To, and that's how you help diagnose it. There are lots of mammals that can be reservoirs for Chagas disease. Um, and so, you know, the triadamine can take a blood meal from the person or the mammal or whatever, and then it has a whole process in the bug too that I'm not going to focus on here. Um, we said it's in the Americas. It's endemic in most of Central and South America, though higher levels of disease in, in certain parts, especially Bolivia. It's called the Gran Chaco region, Bolivia, parts of Brazil, um, upper Argentina. Um, Reduvid bugs are nocturnal, so they get in through like walls of especially like mud sort of houses. Um, they sort of live in the walls, they come out at night, feed on humans. Um, and so it's, you know, you can prevent most cases of Chagas if you're able to like improve the living conditions of people. So if you plaster the walls, if you seal the entryway so the bugs can't get in. Um, in a past life, I did Chagas research in Bolivia and we went to local towns and like would shine flashlights and all the reduvid bugs would come pouring out and we'd capture them. So, um, <laughs> sorry, I tried to find a picture of me bug hunting, but I couldn't. Um, but the reason, you know, and so when you see how many bugs there are in these areas, like there's communities where 
the vast majority, 80% of people like have been infected at some point in their life with Chagas. Um, but Chagas is not very easily spread. It's estimated that it takes about like one to 4,000 bites before some, on average, before someone's infected with Chagas. So it's not a super efficient mode of transmission. It's just that in these endemic areas, there's such high amounts of this bug and such high amounts of T. cruzi that it does eventually get into many people. Um, and in, you know, the orange says that the U.S. is not endemic but present. We'll talk about that more on the next slide. But they do estimate that there's about 300,000 people in the U.S. with Chagas disease. Um, many of those immigrants, travelers, and then through congenital transmission, ongoing transmission to their children potentially because people are not routinely screened for Chagas disease in pregnancy or prior. And then local transmission has occurred in the southern U.S. Um, and I just wanted to highlight that a little more because I think it's sort of interesting. So these are all triadamine species that can carry Trypanosoma cruzi in the United States. And you can see by the range that they cover a whole lot of the U.S. and have potential. Um, and they've been shown that these vectors can get into human dwellings, especially if you have like stacks of wood or you don't have like screened windows or that bugs can get in much more easily. Um, and when they go out and capture these bugs and they test them, often they have evidence of human blood meals. And so a review on this topic written by one of my mentors said, like, clearly transmission to humans occurs in the U.S. We need to more investigations to quantify risk. Most infections are probably undetected, but it seems like a low number. We don't really see it that much. And so why don't we see more underdiagnosed? Uh, but there's also thoughts that there's less um, risk for transmission in the U.S. One of them is that these specific bug species that are in the U.S. compared to South America take longer after they eat to defecate. And so that transmission's not as high yield. And then as I mentioned, like the whole transmission, even in um, like Bolivia and these highly endemic regions, you have to get a lot of uh, bites before you tend to get infected. Um, I just thought that was interesting because we know that these bugs are here and can bite humans and do bite humans, but why don't we really see that much Chagas? Okay, so clinical disease symptoms. You start, you get a bite. Within a couple of weeks, you get the acute phase where you have parasitemia, you can detect it in the blood, um, and all of your tests are positive. The, the buzzword we always hear is Romagna sign, you know, from a bite near the eye. You can also get like an allergic reaction to the bite that can cause the eye selling, but, you know, most cases would not have that. It has to be a bite at that specific location, and um, but rarely it happens. And then over time, you go into the chronic phase where you don't have, you wouldn't detect um, T. cruzi on a blood smear, you may still be able to detect it on PCR, um, but really in this chronic phase, the diagnosis is usually based on serology showing you've been exposed. And then it goes into the indeterminate form where you don't have any signs or symptoms. And over decades, about 20, 30% of people will progress to the more severe forms of Chagas disease that we worry about. The Chagas cardiomyopathy, the gastrointestinal Chagas disease with megacolon, megaesophagus, um, or people can get both, though most people do not get both. Um, and the cardiomyopathy presents as dilated cardiomyopathy. People, it affects the conduction system. You see a lot of conduction abnormalities, and then people develop, you know, symptoms of CHF and heart failure. Um, and then reactivation, we'll talk about more as a big topic. Um, so in immunocompromised patients, um, this is things we could see from people who grew up in those countries and then have moved here. Um, and AIDS, and they have very different presentations depending on why you're immunocompromised. And the big ones we see it are AIDS and then solid organ transplants. 
in AIDS, it tends to reactivate in the CNS and looks very much like toxo brain abscesses. Um, so you have to think of this um, to even have a chance of making the diagnosis. It can cause other, other presentations, but that's really the most common one. In solid organ transplant in patients, it can cause, um, if you're a recipient, it can be very severe. Fevers, pedosplenomegaly, myocarditis, inflammatory paniculitis. Um, and it occurs within months after transplant, not days, not years, but sort of in that month's time period. Um, and it's a big topic in heart transplants, especially. Um, in Brazil and South America, a lot of people get heart transplants and their indication is Chagas cardiomyopathy, which is interesting. Um, so this, in terms of the diagnosis, as we mentioned, when it's an acute infection within a few weeks, you can discuss or you can identify T. cruzi, triple mastigotes in blood smear. Um, if it's chronic, you may detect, you may detect it by PCR, not always available in countries where it's endemic. Um, if you were to take a biopsy of an infected heart, you may be able to find the amastigotes in heart tissue, which is part A. And then treatment. So the first question regarding treatment is always, do you treat? How beneficial is treatment? So this is a table from the purple book that I thought was easier to understand. That, and the top five things you treat, if it's acute, if it's early congenital, so kids, um, kids respond better to the treatments than adults, or if it's reactivation in an immune host, and young adults who don't have any signs of like um, the more advanced disease, you treat. In people who are over 50, maybe. In GI disease without cardiomyopathy, maybe. In advanced cardiomyopathy with congestive heart failure, you don't treat. Um, and there was a large, and then during pregnancy, renal failure, you definitely don't treat. Um, there was a randomized controlled trial in South America looking at the treatment benzonidazole in people who had like EKG abnormalities, like early signs of potentially progression to Chagas cardiomyopathy, and treatment didn't show any benefit over non-treatment, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, ideally you do a clinical trial where you follow people for 20, 30 years, but obviously yeah. it's not feasible. Um, the main treatment is benzonidazole. Uh, Peripheral neuropathy, rash, cytopenias are really the main um, side effects people have from it. It's more effective and better tolerated in children. They do like screening campaigns in endemic regions. And nifurnamox is the alternative, has some of the same side effects, but more severe, less well tolerated. Okay, so now the other trypanosoma species, the sleeping sickness ones in Africa. So you have to think of them as a little bit separate. So Gambiense in West Africa is much more common in the vast majority of cases. It's endemic. Most of the cases are in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and this is a more slowly progressive disease. It presents more chronically over months. Rudesiense in East Africa is like very much isolated to East Africa. And that case we had, she was in Tanzania, which is in East Africa. Um, and it's often associated with like safari trips. Um, it's not as endemic in the general regions where people live. And this is much more acute disease. It's much more severe, rapidly progressive. Um, but you can see the number of reported cases. They're like, the scales are not even the same. For the West African version, it's like the dark red is greater than a thousand cases. For the other one, it's like 10 cases. So Gambiense is much, much more common. And again, another life cycle. 
Um, and you can see that it's again the uh, tripomastigotes are the part that gets infected when the tsetse fly, which is the vector, takes a meal. And then they go into the bloodstream, they spread throughout the body through binary fission. Um, and those are really the main one. You can detect them in the blood during acute phase. And animals you can see are reservoirs for the East African version. And then the clinical presentation. So you think of it as two parts. Stage one is early, it's called the hemolymphatic stage. It's because parasites are in the blood and lymphatic system, lymph nodes. Um, this can be very prolonged in Gambian, say the less severe form. You get these intervals of like fevers, headaches, lymphadenopathy. Um, in Rhodesiense, it's much more rapid. And in this one, you can have a shanker at the site of inoculation of the TC fly bite. Um, this picture shows some different shankers. I think, I don't know that we'd all recognize some of these as shankers potentially, but um, they are reported to be. And this becomes much more severe quickly. Stage two is, if untreated, goes on to develop CNS manifestations, giving the name sleeping sickness. Um, and so on labs, you'll have cytopenias and hypergammaglobulinemia. If you have any, you may need CSF studies for staging. Um, we'll get to that on the next slide. Direct microscopy, you can see the parasite in the acute phase in lymph node blood, CSF. Um, and looking at microscopy cannot distinguish the two different species. So you're going to be using epidemiological factors, sort of clinical disease for part of that. There is serology av available for Gambiense, but it cross-reacts with other infections. It uh, may or may not be super helpful. And treatment, um, not going to belabor this point because it's a little bit detailed, but I think the key point is that in West African, you need a lumbar puncture if you have someone young or if they have any symptoms concerning for CNS disease, any neurologic findings. In East African, you always need a lumbar puncture to determine your treatment. I think that's probably the most important point. And then for both of them, stage one and stage two are treated differently. Um, okay. So yeah, we'll do a few. I have a few questions just to sort of reinforce some of the things we learned. Um, Kurt, do you want to read this one? I'll start here. 47-year-old man presented with an intensely painful ulcer of 13-day duration of the glands penis surrounding the urethral orifice. The lesion had started uh, as multiple small swooping ulcers, which had then coalesced. The ulcer had distinct raised erythematous edges. There was trichotic slough and foul-smelling hemopurulent discharge. The penis was edematous, and there was bilateral tender inguinal lymphadenopathy. He had uh, unprotected insertive and receptive anal sex with at least 20 men in the preceding three months. Oh. HIV negative, syphilis is negative, trophozoids containing ingested RBCs. And I don't know who it is in the STD clinic doing this direct microscopy and recognizing trophozoites with ingested RBCs, but yeah. Wait, the wet mouth is from um, the ulcer. Yeah. I think Will said it already, but C. And what tells you it's C? Ingested RBCs. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, most of the board's questions for Entamoeba give you this like trophozoites with ingested RBCs. So that's super important. But this goes to that, it's not the most common clinical presentation, but you can get these cutaneous lesions in the general region from direct inoculation. Um, 
fascinating, right? Okay, Celia. Eight-year-old woman presented with a non-healing ulcerative lesion on her left earlobe. She was from Central Texas and spent many hours a day working on her ranch. The lesion had not responded to empiric subluxin. A biopsy lesion was performed, and on histology, you see histiocytes in the dermis, which are filled with small round structures that have both a nucleus and a kinetoplast. What is the most likely organism? Mexicana. Mexicana. That's what Texas. <laughs> Texas. Yeah, exactly. Using the hints you have, and I mean a non-healing ulcerative lesion that they didn't say, tell you isn't non-painful, but um, certainly makes you think of leishmaniasis. The histology matches as well. The kinetoplast is part of it. Some of these other ones like histo wouldn't have that. Okay. Thirty-five-year-old man was brought in by ambulance after being found unconscious. His partner gave a collateral history of preceding symptoms for three weeks of fevers, headache, and new onset seizures. He was known to have HIV, but not been taking ART or taking prophylaxis. The patient was originally from Brazil, but immigrated to the U.S. two years ago. On exam, he was somnolent with right-sided upper and lower extremity weakness. CD4 counts 23, viral load 76,000, toxo IgG negative, um, CSF EBV PCR negative, CSF ERL negative, MRI brain showing three discrete hypodense masses in the cerebellar cortex with contrast ring enhancement. What is the diagnosis? Yeah, and in general, for multiple ring enhancing lesions in HIV AIDS, what would you think of? So, right, his IgG negative would be weird. Um, you could think of primary CNS lymphoma. His, I guess that's what they're getting at with the EBV PCR. But yeah, Chagas brain abscess. Yeah, wild, right? It's a multiple, right? Yeah, there were three. Yeah. A 65-year-old woman pres presented with two weeks of fever, diarrhea, and unintentional weight loss. She had a history of hypertension and migraines. She was, a, she was a retired attorney and had been working with an NGO in rural Uganda for the past five months. She started to feel poorly while still in Uganda and was administered something for malaria by a local physician without uh, improvement. On exam, her temp was 38.3 Celsius and there was slight discomfort on neck flexion. Exam otherwise was unremarkable. WBC 7.3, hemoglobin 13.2, um, clearance 559, malaria rapid antigen was negative, peripheral, peripheral blood showed flagellated spindle-shaped organisms seen on several fields. What is the most likely agent? Yeah, yeah, why D instead of C? Yeah, East African, it's much more rapidly progressive. It's not developing over months, it's over like weeks. So Gambia um, is what Gambia is named after, right? Which mm -hmm. is a country in West Africa. Right. So then, mm -hmm. The unfortunate Rhodesia. Rhodesia used to be in East Africa. Yeah, Rhodesia is right above South Africa. Okay, this is the last question I have. So Zimbabwe. Just, oh, now Zimbabwe. It's a little bit long, but. <laughs> <laughs> with a two-month history of fevers, five kilograms weight loss, and increasing abdominal discomfort. 
During his time, he had received two antibiotics from his PCP, but suspected UTIs by symptoms persisted. He had been diagnosed with HIV 10 years ago and was taking tenofovir and tricytamine and dalitegravir. His most recent viral level was detectable. He was adherent to ART, had missed two doses in the past three months. He denied smoking, excessive alcohol, or recreational drug use. He was an engineer, grew up in Spain, and emigrated to the UK five years ago for work. He last traveled to Spain four months ago to visit family during a summer vacation. No other recent travel. Physical exam, he was tan, thin, temperature was 37.9. CD pulse was within normal limits. Abdominal exam showed abdominal fullness. The liver edge was palpable, four finger breadths below the costal margin, and the spleen was palpable to the midline. Um, investigations, hemoglobin was 9.3, WBC was 2.1, ANC is 1200, platelet 76, bilirubin high. <laughs> Sorry, they have a weird unit I didn't translate. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 What do you guys think he has? Visceral leishmaniasis, right? And that was the part of like Spain is endemic. Um, it could have been a recent infection from four months ago, or it could be in his uncontrolled HIV. I don't think, I mean, he's on HIV, so he shouldn't really have like reactivation. I wouldn't expect if he's well controlled, but um, maybe from that recent one. But agree, bone marrow biopsy is the right diagnostic test here. Good job. Um, that's it.